voices. We're surrounded by voices, voices on the TV, voices in our workplaces, voices on the radio, voices in our homes, maybe even voices in our head. They chatter, they agitate, they console, they make demands. The cry of a baby, the growl of a boss, the alarm in the voice of a news anchor, the bluster of a talking head, the encouragement of a friend. Voices from the present, voices we read from the distant past, singing, screaming, begging, often pleading for our attention. And so every day we're forced to make decisions. What voices will we tune into? Which voices will we tune out? Sometimes those decisions don't seem too significant, right? Will will it be Adele or Coldplay? But sometimes they can mean the difference between life and death. Like when a child ignores a parent's voice as they chase that lazy ball just floating errantly down into the street. You know, I wonder if you could, this morning, if you could just tune into any voice, whose voice would it be? Whose voice would you choose to tune into? Maybe a, you have a favorite music artist, a cultural commentator, maybe a best-selling author, maybe a spouse or, or a preacher that you love to have on that podcast. At the end of the day, whose voice do you most desire to hear? Whose voice do you most desire to hear? Because that question, while it seems sort of innocuous enough, how you answer that question is not merely a statement about your musical preference or some statement about tastes in novels. No, how you answer that question is a statement about who you finally trust. It's a statement about who you finally trust and where you're finally headed. Where you're finally headed. And I think the Help us see this. I want to turn in our Bibles one last time in this series that we've been going through in 1 Samuel. One last time to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, I think you can find that on page 237. On page 237. Now as you open to 1 Samuel 15, we closed last week with a king who despite all of his good looks and his Adonis-like physique, right, this guy is an utter failure. He's unraveling before our very eyes, overcome by fear and jealousy and delusion, right? The life of a slow motion train wreck. But if there's one thing that Israel has learned, it's that God is especially forbearing with his people, very patient. We saw that in chapter 12. So Saul may have lost his family dynasty, but he still sits on the throne, And so there remains this ray of hope in the final chapters of his life that he will be able to recover some of what's been lost and that he'll find redemption there in the last days. And so you can imagine as we turn to 1 Samuel 15 and we we get to chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, imagine the relief Saul would have if we come across 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel says to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. 
listen to the words of the Lord. Right? Samuel has not abandoned Saul. Despite all the mistakes that Saul has made thus far through the book, he hasn't been abandoned. He hasn't been abandoned by Samuel, but notice he hasn't been abandoned by God. Neither has God abandoned him. God's coming to him in 1 Samuel 15, 1 with a task. And this is his opportunity. This is Saul's chance to make amends, right? To set the record straight, to start to correct so many of those wrongs and to finally do right. So there remains this, this ray of hope. Notice Samuel says, listen to the words of the Lord. More literally, it's listen to the, that word, words, is literally the Hebrew word for voice. Listen to the voice of the Lord. And this word for voice is going to be, we're going to find it throughout the chapter. It's the reoccurring theme, this voice of the Lord. And because it's the reoccurring theme, I think it's highlighting the main thrust of the text, sort of the big idea of 1 Samuel 15, and it's this. God delights and those who listen to his voice. I think that's the big idea of 1 Samuel 15. And it's that simple. God delights in those who listen to his voice. And in the Bible, true listening results in obeying that voice. And of course, thus far, that's exactly what Saul was, has proven unable to do, to listen and obey the voice of God. But of all the voices in the world, Saul is privileged to be given and to hear God's own voice. So here's his chance. Here's Saul's golden opportunity. Now as we move through 1 Samuel 15, we're going to make a number of observations, just a number of lessons, if you will, about the nature of God's voice. And the first thing I want us to see, sort of first lesson, is that God's voice, it commands us. God's voice commands us. That's the first thing we see in verses one to three. So picking up the story, verse two. So he says, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All right, we'll stop there. And I think we have to confess to many of us that doesn't exactly sound like the voice of the Lord. All right, maybe the voice of some ISIS commander perhaps, but not the voice of the God of the Bible. And there's a lot that I could say to these verses. I just want to make two observations though this morning. And the first is this. Saul's experience of that command and those words would have been markedly different than ours. His experience of those words would have been markedly different than our own experience, right? To us, words like that sound horrifying, but to Saul, receiving those words actually would have been an honor. Okay, how would that have been an honor? Well, the Amalekites were the very first people. As we go back and look at the story of of Israel being led out of Egypt, they were the very first to pick a fight with Israel after the exodus, But they didn't pick that fight honorably, if you will. If you read Deuteronomy 25, the Amalekites targeted 
those struggling to keep pace with the caravan. The old men with canes, the women with young children, the weak, the elderly, the needy, those stragglers, the Amalekites ruthlessly picked off one by one, killing them. And all this, Deuteronomy says, because the Amalekites did not fear the Lord. Now we know from Exodus 34, 6, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is true. And yet it's also the case that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. And so the Lord had promised in Exodus 17 that when the people had rest in the promised land, they were to blot out the memory of the Amalekites. And now it's some 300 years later. God's not impetuous. He's not impulsive in his wrath. And as we'll see later in verse 33 of this chapter, the Amalekites, they haven't changed their ways at all. And their day of reckoning has now come in 1 Samuel 15. And so to Saul, this is a chance both to honor the Lord and his promise and to honor his people. But I think as we got to note that, but as we shift from Saul and his experience of hearing these words to our own experience of hearing these words, we recognize that this may smack to us of genocide or, or ethnic cleansing, raises a host of questions about God's love and his justice, And we want to bring Saul, maybe even God himself, before the Hague, right, or some war crimes tribunal when we read this. But I want to be really clear. This is about sin, not the color of one's skin. It's about their sin, not the color of their skin. So terms like ethnic cleansing and genocide, they actually misunderstand what's taking place here in 1 Samuel 15. Devote to destruction is a technical term. It refers to irrevocably giving things or persons over to the Lord, often by destroying them. And in warfare, only the Lord, only the Lord can initiate such a battle. You can look at Deuteronomy 7 or Deuteronomy 20. Therefore, this has nothing to do with settling personal scores or vendettas or honor killings. It's not what we have in 1 Samuel 15. And as no no modern nation state rests or stands in the same relationship to God as, as Israel did in the Old Testament, So there's no modern nation state today that stands in the same relationship to God as Israel did in the Old Testament. There's no nation state there for today. No nation state a couple hundred years ago, whether or not you think of the Crusades. No nation state that can point to such a text like this and therefore justify its thirst for blood or for conquest or for power. And lest we think that God has unfairly singled out the Amalekites We also have to recognize that judgment, as it so often does in the Bible, it actually begins with the household of God. In Judges 21, the same term, devote to destruction, is actually given as a command against God's own people. So Israel, they're not given a free pass on their sin either. Right? But is such a command that the Lord gives to to Saul, is such a command just? I think as we as we pose that question, we have to stop. We have to be really careful. That's a dangerous question because when we ask that question, is this just, we're immediately placing ourselves in the morally superior position of judge 
and we're making God justify himself to us. And I think this is where Jesus in the New Testament can be helpful. For Jesus talks a lot more about hell in the New Testament than the Old Testament actually talks about holy war. And while the horror of a holy war will end, hell is a place of torment that will endure forever. If we truly grasped the reality and the horror of hell, Jesus' words would be far more horrifying to us than when we actually read in these very verses. And yet when we come across Jesus in the New Testament and he speaks about hell, Jesus is not shocked so much by hell's existence. He's rather shocked by the hardness, by the hardness of men's hearts. The truth is humanity is so evil, their evil so great, that back in the days of Noah, God felt the need to send a flood upon the earth. And today we read, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, 2 Peter 3, 7. So you see, the New Testament suggests that this devotion to destruction was only a small-scale anticipation of that judgment that would one day come to the whole world at the hands of the appointed King Jesus. So you see, our struggle to see this as just is finally a struggle to comprehend the depth of our own rebellion against a good and a holy God. Right, what the Amalekites were to receive, what they were to receive is what we all deserve for our spiritual rebellion. Every day that God doesn't demand our lives, that is a sign to us of his great mercy. A mercy that would inexplicably lead God to do the unthinkable, to give over his only son unto death so that sinners and rebels might receive life. So you see, before the cross, our cries of fairness and justice are silenced as the sinless one lays himself down for sinful humanity. If there's a justice problem in the Bible, let's be really clear, it lies right there at the foot of the cross, not at the foot of any Amalekite. But just stepping back into the story, Saul's been given a command. It's a hard command. It's a command, though, given by the Lord. And here's Saul's opportunity to correct the record. So in the annals of history, there's not always an asterisk by the first name of the first king who couldn't, for a moment, obey the voice of the Lord. So will he listen? That's the question. But here's the second thing I want us to see, sort of the second lesson as we work through. God's voice, it challenges us. It challenges us. We see that in verses 4 to 11. We pick up the story. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and telling him 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay and wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go. Depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. 
So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the auction and of all the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. All right, let's stop there. All right, so how did Saul do? Well, not, not too bad, right? He's, he's not going to get caught with a small force back like he did in chapter 13. He masses a large force, and he's not some bloodthirsty crusader who merely slaughters everything in his path. Notice, you note there with the Canaanites, he treats them with compassion, right? And these folks are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, those who assisted Israel in her wilderness wanderings. He treats them with kindness and compassion. But then we read there in verse 7 that Saul defeated the Amalekites. And of course, the horror wrapped up in those words is unimaginable to us. But just notice that the Bible doesn't, doesn't become consumed with, with all the gory details of the battle. It doesn't glorify violence. It is honest, yes it is, but it's not obsessed. It's certainly not turning such violence into internet recruiting videos. God is just, and yet he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.23. This is not a day for celebration, especially as we look to the following verses. For what did we read but that Saul spared Agag and the best of the livestock. The one thing, the one thing Saul was commanded not to do in verse 3 was to spare them, and yet just a few verses later, that is the one thing he is doing. He's sparing them. And lest we think Saul's become some friend of PETA, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals, lest we think that that's part what's happening in his own heart, notice what he's sparing The Bible's very clear. He's sparing the best. He's sparing the best. This isn't Saul, conscience-stricken, right, like Sarah McLaughlin over the fate of some orphaned animals on a TV commercial. That's not the kind of concern Saul has here. This is Saul and the people keeping back the best. And remember, in a war like this, there's no spoil to be had. This isn't their war. This is of the Lord. And yet here we find Saul with his hand deep in the cookie jar. So friends, let me just offer this as a a warning. Beware of self-serving selective obedience. Beware, my friends, of self-serving selective obedience. God's voice challenges us. It does because it demands our obedience, and it demands all of our obedience. And partial obedience is not obedience. He demands all of it. And Saul is engaged here in that age-old trick of selective hearing. In effect, Saul's obeying so long as it served his interests, but the second it ceases to serve his interests, he ceases to obey, and he starts to listen to other voices. So I just wonder, I wonder, think about your own life for a minute. Where are you tempted toward self-serving, selective obedience? Where is that a temptation for you? 
Maybe in your words. Do you tell the whole truth? So long as it suits the occasion? Do you tell the whole truth so long as it serves your interests? Otherwise, are you you content with half-truths? Not bold-faced lies, but those kind of truths that you know will lead people to assume things that in fact are not true. What about your purity and your own purity? Are you content with selective obedience? Paul says among God's people, there's not even to be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality. Are you content with plenty of hints in your own life? You know, so long as you're careful about the really big stuff. What about selective obedience and by how you might ignore or seek to redefine sin? You know, the the Bible's been in the crosshairs of culture when it comes to biblical sexuality and gender and in face of, of the increasingly indignant and vociferous voices against the Bible's teaching, it becomes harder and harder to hold true to what the Bible teaches. You know, you're at risk of losing friendships, respect among coworkers and family, maybe even the risk of losing friends and employment. So are you tempted to employ some selective obedience like Saul? Have you you chosen rather quietly sort of ignore, again, or redefine what the Bible has to say? Just you have to beware of this self-serving selective obedience. Because while it has the appearance, the appearance of obedience, in the end, such self-serving selective obedience reveals it's finally not God's voice we're actually heeding. God's voice challenged Saul, but it's going to challenge Samuel too. We pick it up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. We'll stop there. Remember, Samuel entered into this whole political experiment very reluctantly. It wasn't his idea, and yet here it is unfolding as a horror film, just as he feared. And so when Samuel hears that God regrets, as he says in verse 11, regrets that he had made Saul king, those would be hard words. Those would be challenging words. For that word regret expresses great emotional sorrow and grief. Now, when God says that he regrets making Saul king, he's not saying, oh my goodness, boy, I really blew it with Saul. I really blew it with this guy. If I could just go back, I would do it so much differently. I would have picked an entirely different man. That's actually not what God is saying when he says, I regret. We say such things, of course, because we don't know the future. But God knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing that happens in the future that will catch God by surprise. He knows, again, the ends from the beginning. This regret doesn't mean that God was sorry that he had made Saul king. He's not sorry over his choice. Rather, he's sorrowful over Saul's sin. It's not his decision that he regrets. It's Saul's sin that he regrets. Because God's not disinterested. He's not blasé about sin. Indifference. Indifference is not an attribute of God. So be very careful as you live your life. 
Indifference is not an attribute that he possesses. God is not some some cold slab of concrete. He cares deeply about what he has created and how those created in his image bear that image. And the only other time the Lord is pained over actions like this is back in Genesis 6. We read, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord, there's that word, regretted. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Right? The regret is the sin. It's the sin. Samuel cries out all night because Saul, you see what's happening here is the, the narrator is helping you see that Saul is leading Israel right back into the days of Noah leading them right back, and God's voice would challenge him, for not only will Samuel to be grieved, but now Samuel's going to have to intercede and right what Saul has wronged. And that brings us to our third lesson. God's voice, it confronts us. God's voice, thirdly, it confronts us. We see this in verses 12 all the way down through 23. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel that Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, they have, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not of the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners. Remember, it's not about, it's not genocide, it's about their sin, the sinners. The Amalekites fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of of the Lord. Why did you pounce on the spoil? Do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
he has also rejected you from being king. All right, if we had any hopes for Saul, such hopes have now been dashed upon the rocks of disobedience and conceit, of his disobedience and conceit. For no sooner does Samuel rise up and he goes to meet Saul, that notice what happens. He trips over a monument made in Saul's own image. Saul has set up an Ebenezer, but in his own honor. In his own honor, we noted how Saul, we noted how he controls the presses back in chapter 13. Well, apparently he's beginning to believe all of the press clippings about himself, right? Because there's a stone of help, not in honor of the Lord's hands, but in honor of Saul's own hands. And so Saul has the audacity to confidently strut up to Samuel and say, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, But of course, in what universe, Saul? In what universe is that obedience? Is that kind of selective obedience? In what universe is that obeying the voice of the Lord? You're surrounded, notice, by what? By by bleeding sheep, by lowing oxen. You know, this is the adult version of a four-year-old saying, Mom, I didn't touch the cookie jar. But they've got both hands full. They've got crumbs dripping from their mouth. They've got fresh chocolate smeared over their T-shirt. He's caught. The kid's been having a party in the cookie jar. He's been having the same party right here. Literally, Samuel says, the text literally says, what then are the voices? We say bleeding because it helps make sense, but it's literally, what are the voices of the sheep in my ears and the voices of the oxen that I hear? So don't miss this. Saul would rather surround himself with the voices of barnyard animals than the voice of his king, than the voice of the Lord. He'd rather surround himself by the voices of barnyard animals than the voice of his king. And that is a hilarious picture if it wasn't so tragic because he is the Lord's anointed. He is the king. But that's what sin does, my friends. That's exactly what it does. It hardens our heart and it blinds us to our wrongs. I assume Saul was being honest when he thought he obeyed the voice of the Lord. But his disobedience had so twisted his understanding, he didn't even grasp Saul, Samuel's own instruction. So I just wonder, just think about your own life. Is there a sin in your life that has begun to blind you in the same way that Saul's sin blinded him? Something you maybe once used to grieve over, something you once used to confess with that friend, but you know, now when it happens, you just you barely hesitate to even notice. Don't bat an eye at it. Well, that's exactly why if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you need to be in a community with other Christians. You need to be accountable to them, and they need to be accountable to you. For when sin blinds us, like Saul's been blinded, we need someone else to confront us. We, see, we need another who loves us enough to open up our eyes and to help us see our errant ways and to call us back to repentance, which is just another way of saying we need the kind of accountability and love that's afforded in being the member of a local church and being a committed member within a local church for perhaps the only 
thing, as dangerous as a Christian without God's voice is a Christian without God's visible community around him. Perhaps the only thing as dangerous as a Christian without God's voice is a Christian without God's visible community around him. Now the fact that Saul has such sort of brazen disregard for the command suggests he must have some great defense cooked up. He must have hired the best lawyers in the land to plead his case. His guilt is literally lowing right, and bleeding all about him. And yet, what is his defense? Notice what his defense is. They, he says, they brought them. The people spared the best of the sheep. And Saul's right back to where he's been before. He's blame shifting. He's making excuses. They did. They brought. And of course, we've seen such rationalizations before. Right, The woman you gave me, she gave of me to eat, and so I ate. Saul stands in that same ignominious line of Adam. Right, A hall of busts noted not for their faith in God, but rather for their failure to listen to his voice. And so Samuel confronts Saul again in verses 17 down to 21. And notice in that confrontation, it's all about the voice of the Lord. It's about the voice of the Lord, verse 19 in particular. Saul's pathetic insistence is that he obeyed that voice in verse 20. He keeps blame shifting in verse 21 as if pleading harder, somehow going to change the obvious facts all about him. Right, but we can't excuse our disobedience by claiming some noble motive. He's claiming it was, oh, it was for the sacrifices. Right, that's what he's, now he's just appealing to some other motive. But we can't minimize our disobedience by claiming a noble motive. We can't say, you know, I know I padded the expense, sheet, expense report. You know, I know I, I, didn't, I didn't note all my income on those forms, but I was trying to pay for my kid's education. I was trying to make sure I could give, of course, give some extra money to the church. Right? We can't make such foolish claims. Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's the heart of the matter. Right there in verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And of all people, Saul should know this. Because what happened back in chapter 13? He didn't obey and he offered the sacrifice. He should have learned his lesson, but here we are again, offering sacrifices without obedience. So friend, recognize you can't. You can't compensate for your disobedience with empty religious ritual. Right? No amount of our fathers, or doxologies, or church attendance, or larger offering is going to make up Right? No sacrifices, no oblations. They, those things aren't substitutes biblically for obedience. Right? External devotion can never take the place of an internal submission in the heart. And friends, we must know this because all of us, myself included, our temptation is, is to pursue disobedience and then when we feel conscience-stricken or frustrated or discouraged, we try to make up for that disobedience with sacrifice, right? It's Mardi Gras, and then what? 
in Lent. That's just human nature. Mardi Gras and then Lent. Things got a little crazy on Saturday night. I'll make up for it on Sunday morning. I'll make sure to go to church. That's how the human heart works. That's the logic of the world. And yet the Bible says, friends, that is a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand. The logic of the gospel says, don't make sacrifices. God has made a sacrifice. God has made the way in Jesus Christ. There is no more debt to pay. No sacrifice, no debt to pay. God paid it, so go and obey. Go and obey. So if you've come this morning and you know you've disregarded the voice of the Lord, you know that that conscience speaks to you and you have tried to put your fingers in your ears and plug those ears to hear those truths, Lord, just remove those fingers and let yourself be free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you have sinned, there is a sacrifice that can pay for that sin, and it's not something that you need to make. It's something that's been made for you in Christ. There on the cross, Jesus Christ lived the life that none of us would live. None of us would want to live. None of us could live. He did live that life, and he died as a substitute for sinners so that when we place our faith in him and when we trust in him, we get rid of the guilt and the shame and he bears that for us and we receive in return his righteousness and the con, not the condemnation, the commendation of the Father. That's what we receive from Christ. All of his blessings become ours. And we know that's the case because only one man died and then walked out of the tomb and rose again from the grave. And so, friend, that is your hope. It's not in empty sacrifices. It's not in ritual. It's in obeying and believing in the one who's laid down his life for you. And if you have not done that, I pray that you would. I pray that you would. And that brings us to our fourth lesson, though. God's voice, it also convicts. It also convicts us. We see this in verses 24 to 31. God's voice convicts. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. All right, so it seems Saul's finally come clean. Like, no more contorted reasoning and vain attempts to justify himself and all of his activities. He simply says, I've sinned. And eventually, we all get to that point in our lives where where the weight 
of what we have done piles upon us and we just can't ignore it. And we say, yes, I've come to the end of myself. I've sinned, I've been weighed, and I've been found wanting. And notice why, says, why Saul says he sinned. Because, right, in verse 24, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Right now we finally have the truth. Saul had tuned the stereo of his own heart to the wrong station. He had tuned the stereo of that heart to the station, to the voice of the people, and instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. Remember what we saw last week, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man, what does that do? It lays a snare, and again, Saul is caught up in it. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Now, you know, this week we get to vote, and whatever you may think of the particular candidates, it is a tremendous privilege to be able to vote, to vote within a a representative democracy. And as much, though, as I love our democracy, we have to recognize, even in this election season, theologically speaking, we all live under a monarchy. All of us do, everyone under a monarchy. Ours, spiritually, is not a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The Lord's voice rules, period. The Lord's voice rules, and he's not the kind of person who's going to be swayed by opinion polls. So, my fellow Christian friends, if we're not careful, the voices of the world They are going to drown out that one voice right now, especially that we most need to hear. It's exactly when the shouts of the world become that much louder that the voice of the Lord must ring that much louder in our own ears. So this isn't a season to go into sort of the off-season of Bible reading. I know Major League Baseball just finished. It's off-season. As a Christian with Bible reading, there's never an off-season. We never take that break We don't take a break from gathering together with our church family. More than ever, we need that clear, sweet, strengthening, convicting, renewing word of the Lord in our ears. You know, friends, we've been given an extra hour. Like this morning, great. I hope you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. Maybe you even woke up before your alarm. Wonderful. Use that transition to make sure you get up and read that word. Engage with God's word. Hear that voice, that voice we all need. It's it's not by accident that the overwhelming testimony of Christians throughout history is that they flourished when they regularly fed on God's word. If you want to flourish as a Christian, that is a simple and imperative place to start. Feed on God's word. Feed on that word. Let his voice be that voice you hear. And yet while Saul's made a confession of sin, it's actually a little less clear that he genuinely feels conviction over that sin. We're warned in 2 Corinthians, there's such a thing as godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And I fear that Saul is in that latter camp. It's just a good thing to remember, my friends, is we have people who come to us with great tears of repentance. Repentance is often best exhibited over time, over time. A tearful confession doesn't necessarily mean a true heart change, and I think we even see that here. Because 
Notice he's asking both for pardon and Saul wants Samuel's presence with him. So he doesn't just beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And oh, by the way, you've got to come with me and you've got to honor me and restore me back with the people. Notice he's saying both of those things at the same time. And yet we come across in verse 29, that statement that the Lord does not have regret. And maybe if you're listening carefully, like, no, wait a minute, in verse 11, he said he did have regret. Sort of what's happening here? Well, just to be clear, that word in Hebrew, it has two notions. Like many of our English words have multiple meanings, has multiple notions. It also has two. It has has a, a meaning that refers sort of to emotion, and it has a meaning that refers to decision. And so back in 11, as Saul... As, as we're thinking about the, the grief that the Lord feels over Saul's sin, we remember that sin legitimately grieves the Lord. And we'll see that again in verse 35. And yet here in verse 29, when it comes to, to God's purposes, when it comes not merely to his emotional effect of Saul's sin, but to his decisions and what he chooses to do, well, those are fixed. God's not second-guessing with Saul. God's not an emotional yo-yo going back and forth here. He's not relenting. He is sorrowful over Saul's sin, but yet he's not relenting. He's not regretting. He's still steadfast in how he's going to deal with Saul. And of course, as parents, we know this. We know to watch our kids. We know the sorrow when they make poor choices and they sin. And yet at the same time, we know that steadfastness that says, yes, but I'm going to hold fast to this course of action and parenting. But though it hurts, I think it's best, best for them. But Saul still doesn't seem to be listening to the voice. Because again, he's saying, please pardon my sin and return with me. Verse 30, honor me. Honor me before the people. Saul's still living for appearances. right? Fear of man, still living for appearances, still vying for the praise. So if God's voice has convicted you, if you feel convicted by the voice of the Lord, don't run from that. Don't seek to plug your ears from that either. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction reminds us of our need. It reminds us that we're not who we often think we are. We need to be humbled, to be reminded of our true condition. Contrition magnifies God's own grace in our lives. It makes us more appreciative of what he's done, what he's done for us in Christ in the gospel. Because those who who spurn, who spurn that convicting voice of the Lord, they only receive condemnation. And that's what we see in this final, this final lesson. God's voice, it's done a lot of things so far. It also condemns. God's voice condemns us. Verse 32 to 35. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
Now listen, Samuel's, he's a priest. He's not some bloodthirsty mercenary. And for all we know, this is the first time in these verses that Samuel's ever held a sword in his life. So don't misunderstand this as some murderous rampage where, you know, agags become a pinata for Samuel's frustrations. That's not what we're to think here. Agag was suffering in these verses the death penalty for all of his crimes. And there is no, there's no electric chair, there's no firing squad, right? There's, there's no in lethal injection. It is by the sword. And Agag's wit, his, his own wickedness had, had received its full measure. You know, in Israel, there aren't going to be any more mothers bending over their dead youth. And deposed of the duty of which Saul should have taken up, and he didn't, Samuel had to come back, and he had to do that grisly duty himself. And God's voice, it condemned Agag here, vividly as we see. And yet, in its own way, it condemned Saul as well. Because verses 34 and 35, they speak, again, more to tragedy than they speak any of geography. Samuel now has irrevocably parted ways with Saul. No more counsel, no more commands. The voice of God is now utterly gone in Saul's life. All that is left is unbearable silence. Remember the prophets, the greatest judgment that Israel will receive is a famine of hearing the voice of the Lord. And that's what's happening here in Saul's own life. In the Bible, this is as hopeless as it gets to be cut off from the voice of the Lord. Saul had listened to the voices of other people, other people who had sought a backyard barbecue, right, with the best of all the choice meats, as opposed to obedience to God's word. He had listened to the voices, voices in his own head, that had believed that his victories were deserving of his own personal Mount Rushmore, right? that Ebenezer that he made in his own honor. He even listened, as we saw, to the voices of barnyard animals. Be warned, my friends, for the reality is that those who repeatedly reject God's voice will one day be unable to hear it. So what about you? Because like Saul, and as we began, we're all bombarded by voices. Voices in the media, voices in the academy, voices in ever-changing culture, voices of friends and family. So again, which voices, as you go out of here, which voices will you listen to? Which voices will govern you? Which voices will govern you? Think of Adam listening to the voice of Eve with disastrous results. Think of Abraham listening to the voice of Sarah and taking Hagar to be his wife. Think of the worldwide misery that decision has caused. Think of Saul and countless others who refused to heed the Lord's voice and suffered the consequences. If you can still hear my voice, it's not too late for you to heed the Lord's voice. The people asked for Saul. God gave them what they wanted. And yet he was not done with them. He would give them as well what they needed. For the gospel records a day when once again a voice would be heard, but this time it would be a heavenly voice, a voice speaking out from the heavens, penetrating the clouds and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
we listen to the voice of God by listening to the Son that he sent. We listen to the voice of God by listening to that Son he sent. This is what Jesus would say in the moments leading up to his own execution. You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. John 18, 37. Early in the service, Frank read, what are, who are those that take part in Jesus' everlasting kingdom from John 10? They are the sheep who what? Who hear my voice, and I know them, right? And they follow me. They obey. They hear, and they obey. God's voice, it's not always easy to hear. It makes commands. It challenges us. It does confront us. It convicts us, and one day it will condemn Because Jesus speaks of another day, a solemn day in Matthew 25, when he will come and separate the righteous from the wicked. Who are the righteous? The ones who listen to his voice. Who are the wicked? Those who surround themselves with other voices. God's voice. It is truth and life. In Jesus' words, in his voice, there is eternal life. Amidst the cacophony of voices that we will hear and you'll hear as soon as you exit those doors, which voice will you listen to? What station will you turn and tune your heart's attention to? What voices, what voices will govern you and where and what do those voices say about where you're headed? What voices will govern you as you go? And what will they say as you leave about where you're headed? Pray, think hard over that. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, it's grace we hear your voice. It's grace your voice speaks to us. It's grace that your voice calls out to us. It's grace that your voice even says to us what we often don't want to hear, but what we need to hear. All of that is your grace. What distinguishes you from all gods is that you speak, and we have access to those words of truth. And God, we pray that we would walk out of here with one voice ringing in our ears and that be your voice. And we pray that your voice would be on our lips so that we would be dripping that same voice in the ears of our friends, of our Christian neighbors, of our non-Christian neighbors. Oh Lord, may that be the voice that governs us. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.